Hello everyone, welcome back to On The Ledger. This is your host Mol Said, and I'm back once again on your weekly rendezvous from Paris. And yes, if you haven't noticed it already, we are live in video for the first time. On The Ledger has been evolving and we really wanted to bring you closer to the discussion. So from now on we're doing video and I'm more dogs than ever before. For the occasion, we've got a pretty interesting discussion ahead. You've certainly heard us talk about Web3 and the whole ecosystem hundreds of times before. We've talked about the technology, its use cases, and some of the most fascinating projects of the space. But for us to be able to truly understand where things are heading, we probably need a macro overview of where things currently stand. And we're in luck because today, we've got the perfect person to give us an eagle eye view of the macro environment. Dan Tapiero, who's a veteran of the macro trading world, is the founder and managing partner of Tanti Holdings, which is a mid to late to stage growth equity fund that has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in Web3 companies such as Ledger. And it's fair to say that he has a very clear vision and approach to the space. Together with Ian Rogers, Ledger's chief experience officer, they'll take us down the rabbit hole to explore Web3's present and future macro perspectives. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Without any further ado, on the Ledger Season 2, Web3, a macro perspective on the present and future. Here we go. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for, for doing this with us. Really appreciate you. Um, could you Happy tell our audience? Thank you. Could you tell our audience a little bit about your background and what is a macro investor for the younger people in our audience? You know, I've heard you say that there aren't many macro investors under the age of 50. Um, what is a macro investor? Yeah, um, good question. Um, sometimes uh, the term morphs with macro trader or macro portfolio manager. Um, I say macro investor because I, I tend to have a longer a holding period, a longer time horizon. So, of course, uh, the most famous macro portfolio managers, let's say, investors, you have George Soros and Stan Druckenmiller. Uh, you have um, Paul Tudor Jones, who's a little more shorter term. Same thing with Lewis Bacon. These are the guys who sort of grew up in the 80s and 90s, probably, you know, all of them in their mid-60s or so, who bet on uh, structural changes in the world. And oftentimes, uh, macro trading is, is associated with, you know, crises, uh, you know, the ERM crisis in 92, 93, the Asian crisis in 97, 98, or, you know, maybe bubble bursting. They're big trends, big structural macros, call them even macroeconomic slash geopolitical trends that they see coming in the future. And they make investments based on the expectation that those things are going to, to play out. Um, and I, I do something a little different in the sense that <clears throat> I, I've been a portfolio manager, but I've also uh, been an entrepreneur and started uh, now three businesses basically from scratch um, that were based on macro ideas and that actually were played in my portfolio, but then also played um, through uh, the starting uh, of a business. And, and so how did you find your, how did you find your way into it? What was the start of this oh, for you? Oh, well in, uh, in the early nineties, basically right out of school, my first real job 
you know, I had a little bit of a, 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 they call it sort of quasi-internship beforehand, but my first real job was at a place called Tiger Management and uh, working for Julian Robertson in the macro group. And there were two senior guys there uh, who kind of, you know, showed me the ropes and I learned a ton from them and from Julian. And, you know, that probably was the most, I mean, formative but most important experience for me um, in my career because I saw how one develops a thesis, um, how one executes on it, positions in the marketplace, and then holds a position for, let's say, a medium-term uh, holding period, uh, which can be anything from sort of six to 12 months and more. And so seeing Julian operate and seeing the you know, the risk appetite that he had and the conviction that he had in his investments, uh, frankly, was priceless. So how did I get into it? I was, I was a history major. I went to Brown. I studied um, European 19th century history. I did a BA and MA. And it's very similar to the, you know, studying history is very similar to the investment process. You know, you read 50 things and then you come up with a thesis that maybe hasn't been come up with before. And then you write it down. And if you can't express it clearly, uh, then it's worthless. And so, you know, I went to a high school also that was super focused on uh, writing and English. And, um, you know, by the time I got to Brown, I was already in a place where uh, I had pretty decent command um, of, you know, I would say writing and writing skills. In fact, I was an editor on the Brown Daily Herald, which is the, the daily newspaper of Brown, which in the end ended up being very helpful because it forced me to uh, learn how to be very concise uh, with my words in expressing an idea, sort of like preparation in a way for Twitter, <laughs> you know, early right. preparation for Twitter. What's interesting, and I hadn't. This is a really unexpected answer for me. So, what, on some level, what you're telling me is a is a macro investor is a story investor, because you're looking for these big big changes in in the world, um, and and building a thesis around that, writing writing that thesis down, and then investing against that thesis and and sticking with that story. But I assume there's also then storytelling because you're you've got to tell that story to your colleagues, to investors, etc. Well, right. I mean, for my entire career, and again, I, I retired from that world in 2012, the, the uh, macro money management world, but um, there was only one person you had to convince. <laughs> so that was the guy I was working with at that time. And there were, you know, three or four guys who I worked for uh, who were, you know, I would say sort of similar cal caliber to, to Julian. And that was really the only guy you, you had to convince. So... Uh, I, I relate to that. Yeah. I relate to that. You know, part of the reason I went to LVMH was, and I said this at the time, because there's a guy. Yeah. Working with Jimmy, what I, what Jimmy Ivey, and what I learned is, you know, if when there's a guy, it can cut both ways. Because you know, if you if you can convince him, then you anything's possible. Right. If you can't convince him, or if he thinks you're a bozo, then you're dead. But um, but I really liked, you know, and I and I, I still feel that way about about working with uh, with both Jimmy and Ben. I don't know. I like it when there's one person. And uh, and you can kind of uh, you can get that across the line. What what in in those three um, companies that you set up? What, what what was your your macro thesis with each? 
Oh, uh, well, I mean, that's a much And I assume longer, the third is 10T. Yeah, the th- 10T is one of them. But that's a much longer uh, story. I mean, the bottom line is the first one is in 2006. Um, I was very bullish on agriculture. I uh, was working for Stan Druckenmiller at the time at Duquesne. I think we probably had one of the largest positions in the world on in uh, wheat, corn, soy futures. I'd written up with my analyst team, you know, as I still do today, you know, a 50-page investment memo about the coming bull market in ag, and that sort of supported our investment in the portfolio. And then, you know, Stan loved the idea, and he came to me and said, look, what else, how else can we express this view? And I came up with this idea that farmland prices in certain parts of the U.S. for certain crops could double in the coming five years. Again, wrote the investment thesis, brought on some partners, and we executed that. We started a company called AgCoa, which by 2013 had become the largest private farmland REIT in the U.S. We ended up selling that to the Canadian Pension Fund System, CPP, for $450 million. And then, actually, funnily enough, last year, the Canadians sold that um, uh, REIT to Bill Gates, one of the I don't know if you remember reading that Bill Gates has become the largest uh, landowner in the U.S. Uh, I think our farms, Agcoa, certainly well over 100,000 acres by now, um, you know, pushed him over the pushed him over the edge. I think he paid a billion dollars wow. for those. So that was that was one uh, the first time I sort of took a macro idea that was in the portfolio and expressed it through launching a business from scratch, zero. Um, and then I, I did it again in 08, 09, launched a company called GBI Gold Bullion International. And that company um, um, sells and stores physical gold, silver, platinum, palladium um, in vaults outside of the banking system. Um, you know, at the time, I was nervous about a banking collapse. I didn't want to store my physical bars in a bank um, because I thought, like, it's, it's a hedge, really, for if the bank collapses, why would I hold it in the bank? And I couldn't find really a good way to, uh, to do it, a legitimate sort of blue chip uh, firms. There weren't any out there um, who had storage outside of the banks. And so we found a GBI. And today, my co-founder partner is still the CEO. We're the third largest vaulter of gold in the world outside of the banking system. I sit on the board, still own a pretty decent chunk of the company. Uh, it's done over a million trades now for over 400,000 clients. And uh, it was actually through that company in 2014 that I was introduced to Bitcoin because GBI integrated with a firm called BitReserve, uh, which today is the Uphold Wallet. And we were the first place that you could buy and sell gold to buy and sell Bitcoin uh, or Ripple. And so, um, again, at the frankly, uh, Bitcoin at the time was only a $10 billion asset. And um, I was a macro guy and, you know, used to trading sort of bigger markets. And I never did the work and I just didn't focus on it stupidly. And um, uh, uh, frankly, it wasn't until uh, 2018-19, after the Bitcoin uh, slash Ethereum collapse, um, that I got super interested in the space. I mean, I I had seen that play out in the traditional markets many times. When you have a bubble and then you have an 85, 90% sell-off, you know, that for the most part, that means the asset's going to zero or it's the buying opportunity for, you know, a massive move up. And so I started buying in my own entity, which I've had since 03 called DTAP Capital. 
bought Bitcoin and Ethereum and then, you know, spent six months, you know, going down the rabbit hole, 10 hours a day. And I finally figured out why Bitcoin was so important uh, to the world and, you know, I that it was truly an invention. I always say an invention as important as the invention of the combustion engine, something as important as the discovery of electricity. So I at the time, I, I didn't quite get that in 14. After falling down the rabbit hole, I got that. I positioned my own entity. And then I, I just, you know, started to think, how else can I get exposure to this idea? Is there a business? Is there a fund that I can um, set up? And then 10T Holdings, which you mentioned, is a mid to late stage private equity fund that I, I launched. Well, the idea was launched in the middle of 19. Um, you know, we were going to launch April of 20, but then COVID hit and, you know, we were way late for four or five months and only ended up launching in December of 20, January 21. But that company was the first fund, as far as I know, to exclusively and only invest in mid to late stage companies in the digital asset ecosystem. And those are companies broadly with a market valuation of over $500 million. Um, they've already achieved sort of product market fit. They have their niche. I'm not a venture capitalist, you know, I'm not a technologist. Uh, I wanted to, to build a diversified portfolio that would be leveraged to growth in the overall digital asset ecosystem. So at the time in 19, the value of the DAE was only $300 billion. And I said, if this thing goes up 30X uh, from 300 billion to let's say 10 trillion, um, I wanna build a portfolio that's gonna go up you know, five to 10 times, um, you know, based on that growth. And frankly, I did something that I think was more bold than any fund manager, frankly, has ever done that I'm aware of. I put that view, which for which is a call for a 30 times appreciation into the name of my fund. Um, I mean, I, you know, it's a pretty bold statement. 10 T in 10 years was, is sort of our mantra. Um, anyway, so that 10 T stands for 10 trillion. And so, of course, as you know, Ledger, your company, uh, is frankly our largest investment to date. We've made 18 investments, uh, 13 of them with a valuation of over a billion dollars. Uh, the other, uh, the other one's over 500 million. And thankfully, we have not paid more than 10 to 12 times revenue on any of the businesses. We've been very careful. Um, you know, we, we want to be long-term partners. Uh, in some cases, I have a board seat like with your company. In other cases, uh, we don't. Um, but I'm not looking for a, a quick, you know, move here. A lot of the private equity guys, they're always thinking about exits before they enter. Uh, we want to hold uh, our positions in the portfolio. So I know I went well, off I'm gonna there. Come... Sorry, I went off Yeah, that was, that was great. Yeah. I, I'm going to come back to 10T yeah. a, as well. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad that you that you disclosed that, that you are an investor in Ledger, and I, I wanted to, to make that connection because I think it's incredible that you that you went from self custody of gold um, to self custody of, of Bitcoin, effectively. Yeah. But that 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 move makes perfect sense to me. Um, and and also, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I um, you know, I, I, about you know where where your head was in in 2014. You know, um, uh, you know, compared to where it was. A couple of years later, and and I, but I wanted to, to ask you is, you know, one your kind of process of falling down that rabbit hole. What were the things that you found convincing, and then what did your macro perspective bring to that? 
you know, that, so, that maybe somebody who was, you know, just just, you know, reading that same material, but didn't have the background that you have and what they might have seen in it. Yeah, I <clears throat> I'll tell you the, the truth of the matter is, I don't think in 2014, I mean, I beat myself up about that for not focusing on on the space more. But there really wasn't the academic or intellectual uh, literature, I would say. And again, I came a little bit from an academic background and, you know, reading and coming up with theses. And, you know, every time I would try to read the white paper, I would stop, I'd give up. Uh, proof of work algorithm wasn't any like language and I understood. Um, I didn't understand or even know much about cryptography or I have zero coding experience. Uh, I'm not a mathematician or a scientist. I mean, like I just didn't know any of it. And so I needed it explained to me in English and maybe there was some work out there at the time, but it was hard to find. By 2018, there was a lot more out there. And, you know, the, there were some key books that I read that just crystallized things for me. Safadian Amos's book, The Bitcoin Standard. I mean, he puts the whole thing in a macro context. Uh, I don't agree with absolutely everything that's in there, but I mean, there are some phenomenal um, pages and phenomenal chapters in there. Um, also, a um, Antonopoulos's book, the Internet of Money, Volume 2, for me, was really just an eye-opener. Um, he's just phenomenal. Watch him. I probably watched 20 of his podcasts. He's probably one of the guys that's done more to bring people into the space than anyone in the world. Uh, anything by him. Um, you know, and he's written books on Ethereum, too, which is, again, another sort of level of complexity. Um, those two. And then Jan uh, Pritzker's book, Inventing Bitcoin, 100-page book, which I give to everybody. I probably handed out about 100 of them. They're little thin books, but for the layman, they sort of take you through the mechanism, the functioning, the engineering genius that is uh, the Bitcoin network and how it functions. And for me, I really need to get down to sort of brass tacks on something to really believe it and have conviction. And then when I do, I like to, you know, position in, in a significant way, you know, sort of as I did with Ledger um, and with some of our, our uh, other companies. And of course, in Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, which um, I got very aggressive in, in in Q1 and Q2 19. So those and, three and how things do you think about really, those? I'm sorry. Oh, we'll, we'll turn to 10T in the fund in, in a second. But yeah. but, you know, you've you've. You've said that you know I've I've heard you say you're you're not a trader and and so you're you're not you know in well, and out. I can assets. trade. I mean I I I you know I sat next to Steve Cohen for I don't know almost five years. I on and off. I I definitely can trade if I if I need to. But I do not think that that is the best way to build wealth in this space. This is the most difficult space to trade of any market I've ever seen. Um, I would not trade this unless I had a team of 10 guys watching everything every moment. And, you know, even then, I'm not sure that it's the best way to build wealth. I really think holding a, an asset in the space, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or whether it's Ledger, over a five to seven year period is going to net you the best return. I just want to say it's very hard for people to believe, you know, HODL, HODL. 
it's very hard for people to believe that all I have to do is just buy this and wait. Um, you know, sitting on your hands and being patient is like a superpower in a way. And people don't understand this um, because people's emotions get involved a lot. And the minute you let emotions sink into your decision-making process, you're dead. You're absolutely dead. You're going to lose money. And so this dollar cost averaging, buying uh, Bitcoin, you know, once a quarter with your savings or every month or whatever it is. And then, of course, having it in cold storage, holding it on a ledger uh, is extremely important when you get beyond a certain value. I think if you're holding a few hundred dollars of Bitcoin, you know, it's OK. It, you're, you're the, you know, but once you get into tens of thousands of dollars and, of course, millions, you must. You must uh, have it held on a ledger. Um, and of course, you know, you have a, a few choices there with different nanos, et cetera. So. I'm, I'm curious how you think about, um, I promise I'll, I'll move on from this, but I'm, I'm just so, I'm, I feel personally eager for kind of the macro investor take on this entire space. Yeah. Um, and you've mentioned Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, and, and I'm curious, how, how, do, you, how do those, how do you differentiate those two in your head? And then what do you think of, you know, um, coins beyond coins and chains beyond Ethereum? Yeah, I mean, look, I think those are the core assets. They have network effect. They have history. Um, they're not going anywhere. They can go up and go down and they'll have volatility. But those are really core assets to the ecosystem. To me, everything else is a venture project. Um, I don't really have the skill set to you know, take apart the code and understand necessarily why one is going to be better than the other. I can understand it, you know, in a way, but I, I don't really have the confidence to bet on early stage projects or pre pre-seed protocols. You know, there are a lot of guys out there, Andreessen and Polychain and Parify, Paradigm, they do this for a living. This is their bread and butter. Uh, I, I have no interest in competing with them. So um, I, I don't, you know, there's an entire, there's an entire universe out there. Uh, also of NFTs, which have become very big. Um, I think that, you know, funnily enough, um, we invested uh, $20 million into Yuga Labs. Um, I just finished with my analyst this very long, I don't know, 70 page investment memo about why we invested in Yuga um, and I, I, I see there's tremendous value there in these board apes. And I, I really sort of dug deep there. Uh, and I think I understand that in quotes, I'll say asset. Um, I understand that there's a possibility that it might not be around, but I doubt it. I really think that it's achieved, you know, network effect and a certain status in place that it's not, it's not going anywhere. In fact, the upside um, could be tremendous. And I sort of think of this, you know, when you say like my macro, where does my macro come in? So like as a perfect example to explain board ape, like how can you as a macro investor? Now, again, I, I wrote extensively about this and it's hard to get into it without super detail. But I would just say, I think that there is a possibility that board ape is the equivalent of Mickey Mouse in 1922. So I think that there's a possibility that for this whole, this new generation that, you know, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck does not really appeal 
to 15 year olds today or 10 year olds or whatever it is. But Bored Ape and some of the other characters um, that, you know, Nibits and some of these other characters um, that Yuga will be involving in their metaverse. I think like I kind of see it as potentially like this new generation's characters that they have different personalities. They have different things they're interested in. And again, if I'm even like one tenth correct about that, uh, Yuga as a entity can, you know, is can go from four billion to 40 billion in terms of, you know, what it's worth. Um, I think very few people are thinking about it within that context. Um, but I really think it's possible after all the work we've done. That was the, that was the question I was going to ask you. I, I want to make one observation first. I was thinking as you were talking, how fitting it would be if Yuga was Disney, you know, the Disney, there was Disney of course, and, and, you know, and, and theme parks and, you know, from, from Fantasia to, to Sleeping Beauty, the Disney of the nineties and the early two thousands was owned by Steve Jobs which in some ways makes perfect sense. This common, I'm always interested in this connectivity between technology and culture, because I think we deny it often, but it's always, it's always lurking there under, under the surface. Um, so, you know, the fact that the next one would be, would be related to digital assets makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. But I, I would also say one more thing. And that is that, you know, the, the, in the population of people under the age of 25, I read some study, recently that they spend eight hours a day online in some form or another. And, you know, they, you know, a big part of their lives, it's like half their life, you know, you sleep for eight hours and then, you know, there's only 16 left. I mean, so they're spending half their life and, you know, they really are living online. It really makes sense that they're going to be living in these metaverses, that they're very comfortable living on it. You and I might think it's like stressful. You know, I prefer you, you might prefer to go out for a long walk or something. You know, they don't they don't really think that way. And so, um, you know, the probability and again, everything is probabilities, but the probability that that generation uh, is living their life in a metaverse somewhere um, is very high. And we've already seen that you know, Yuga has been able to capture the attention and really is touching the zeitgeist somehow uh, with their characters and their expression of those characters um, against all odds. I mean, really, it's the fastest growing uh, company. I, I, you know, this company did not exist one year ago. Uh, and then they just raised it a $4 billion valuation. They're doing hundreds of million in revenue you know, 95% margin or whatever it is. Um, so I think that's another thing is that guys like us aren't used to the pace, the speed, uh, the exponential growth rate. It's just, it's hard to compute, you know, it's very hard. To yeah. And I, I think you're right that that, you know, I, I see the same thing. I mean, I'm, I'm turning 50 this year. And, and so I, I feel, you know, at the same time I've been on the internet since 1990. So I feel like I put my, put my time in on the, on this internet, but I, I, you know, and I'm, I'm unfortunately over that eight hours as well. And I see that same thing that I'm living in this borderless world that, that the three of us are in together right now. Um, you know, I, I assume you're in New York, Dan, but I actually probably wrong. No, I'm now. in Dorado beach. 
in uh, there you Puerto go. Rico. Yeah, can't you see the so, sun behind you, me? It's 82 degrees. Yeah, so you're in Puerto Rico, and I had no idea where you were, and it was irrelevant. And that's the point is that, you know, I think Meta's definition of metaverse is people who are not in the same physical space together collaborating. It's a very simple thing. We spend our lives doing it. Um, and of course, that world is going to have its own culture, which is what board apes are. Of course, that world is going to have its own economy, which is which is what, you know, board apes, not as well as, um, you know, Ethereum, Bitcoin and and, you know, and, and on are. Let me ask you this. You know, Ian, um, moving to 10T. Yeah, I yeah. just wanted to put in a point here because I think, it, you know, part of the reason that we invested in Ledger and why I think the, the company is a phenomenal a company for the future is because the board ape is the perfect example. One year ago, there were no board apes. There was zero value. And out of thin air, you have hundreds of millions of dollars, and maybe it's now billions, um, of value that has been created that people have, um, you know, I think put a really formal stamp on. And once that value goes beyond a certain number, that board ape, that one NFT is worth over four or $500,000. You must put it on a ledger. And everyone in the space realizes this. Ledger, to me, uh, own the vaults in cyberspace. And so all the value that is going to accrue into the digital asset ecosystem over the next five to 10 years, as we move from 300 billion to 3 trillion to 30 trillion, the value that will be held on Ledger will uh, increase uh, with the value um, in the digital asset ecosystem. And so I don't really know of a company that is as leveraged and as cleanly and directly as leveraged to that growth uh, as Ledger. So I just wanted to make that clear because that's the reason, not the only, but that was a very primary reason why we invested uh, as much as we did in the company. Well, I, I really appreciate that. And, and I feel the same thing I texted you after the last board meeting, which is, I love your conviction. Um, well, when you do the I, work, I was, you can have conviction. And when you don't do the work, you can't, you know, you wobble around, you take a small position, this and that. It's a painful process. It's like a birthing process every single time, you know, you, you like develop that conviction. But uh, it's very gratifying also. Well, and, and, you know, to your point, we see that that ledger over indexes in these in these communities like Bored Apes, like CryptoPunks, et cetera, because they're communities, first of all. Right. It's a relatively small group of people, um, people. The value has gone up tremendously. So there's a lot of people trying to get Mo's Ape. Um, and and then somebody does end up getting 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 wrecked and losing their value. And then the whole community says, wait. What should we do differently? And the answer to that question is get a ledger. Um, yeah. So we, we definitely over-index in communities of value. There seems yeah. to be a direct correlation between you know asset value and you know number of ledgers inside of a inside of a community, which isn't particularly surprising. I mean, we have you know far fewer in the BFF community today, as an example, than we do in the board apes community, and that makes sense, you know, relative to kind of newness, newness of the customer, education of the customer, asset value, etc. But let, let me ask you then on 10 T, how many funds have you done now? I'm sorry, how many what? Funds? Oh, we have three. This is uh, my third and one is going to close at the end of the month, May 31. Congratulations. Uh, let me ask just the, the kind of the basic question, and, and it, which is, 
you know, as a, what made you decide to invest in this particular way, as opposed to, you know, getting, you know, exposure to the space through other ways, you know, oh. one way is just, you know, buying and holding <laughs> Bitcoin and Ethereum and then hanging on and waiting. Like you said, why, why is there, um, you know, a good, a good bet in investing in these companies of this particular size? Yeah. I mean, I think that there, you, you need to have a bunch of different exposures um, you know, I do not in the fund, but I do have Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I think that should be a part of everyone's portfolio. I think that for the larger uh, investors, um, you know, many of our investors, we also have small investors, but um, I think, you know, you should have, you know, call it five to 10 percent in Bitcoin and Ethereum. You decide. I think you need to have, you know, some VC fund exposure and then I think, you know, you need exposure to these bigger companies that are, you know, dominant today that are going to be around in five, six, seven years. It's a different risk reward profile. I, you know, I'm trying to make a five to 10 X on the portfolio. You have VC funds that are making 20, 30, 40, 50, 50 X. You know, they make 10 investments, nine go to zero and one ends up being Google. You know, that's a valid investment, um, you know, uh, framework. It's just not one that I'm comfortable with. And, you know, as a macro investor, and this is, goes to your first question, I like betting on a sector. I don't like having any companies going to zero. I want to know that when I, if I have a portfolio, I go to sleep and I wake up five, six, seven years later, that that portfolio will increase in value if all of my macro assumptions held true have happened, i.e. the DAE, digital asset ecosystem, uh, becomes as prominent in our lives as I expect it to be. And so for me, it was very similar framework of investing as Agcoa, my farmland REIT. Um, again, it, that was a broad diversified exposure to um, different types of farms that we thought would appreciate given the bull market in the underlying grain market. And so it's a very similar thing. I, I expect a bull market. I think Bitcoin can head up to three, four or five hundred thousand within the next sort of five years. I've been saying that since 19. And I think Ethereum could certainly head up to about 10,000. I mean, I, I know that there are, you know, issues now. There are other layer ones popping up. And, um, you know, there was a bit of a gas fiasco this weekend. Um but, you know, I think all those things are going to be solved. And um, I, I don't I don't think Ethereum is like some of these other projects, as I said. Um, I do think it's core to the ecosystem now. Um, but I think as an investor, you need to spread out your exposures. And this is just the kind of exposure I like the best for myself and for my investors. And it's just consistent what I've done uh, in with, you know, done throughout my career. My sense is that this is, you know, just not at all a Silicon Valley game, which is the game I was involved in in the first 20 years of my career, that it that it's, you know, much more global. Uh, do you feel that as an investor? Am I am I am I sensing that correctly? Yeah. I mean, if you just look at even the geographic distribution of your clients at Ledger, I think that in large part that reflects what this is, which is this is not a U.S. bet. 90% of total world cryptocurrency volume is outside of the US. Um, you know, the largest single entity, so Binance that we all know, has 65% of total 
crypto volume. And almost all of that is outside of the U.S. I mean, I'm excluding Binance U.S., of course. Um, <clears throat> so I think that this truly is the first global macro bet of all time. I mean, I used to trade currencies. There are really only 20 global currencies that were tradable. And today, certainly a lot more than 20 cryptocurrencies. But more importantly, there's a person in every country in the world, up and down the socioeconomic strata, you know, holding $1 of Bitcoin, holding hundreds of millions of dollars of Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever. Um, there's never been such a distributed um, bet, such a decentralized network. Um, I think that in terms of the investments in our fund, we like to split it up. Basically, you know, a perfect world would be 30, 30, 30, which is, you know, between U.S., Europe and Asia and then 10 sort of other. Um, but we are finding outside of the U.S., the 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 multiples are, are much more reasonable than inside the U.S. There are many U.S. investors who, you know, they're not really that comfortable with the space. Uh, so for them to go to Korea or France uh, or whatever, it's just another step that's difficult. Um, and so, you know, that's great for us for the moment. Um, you know, I, 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 I think, as I said, it, it'll change. Um, but, it, you know, it truly is a, a global uh, a global bet. And, and what does that make you think about the U.S. I mean, I've heard you speak about regulation in the U.S., um, but I think when I heard you speak about it, it was before Janet Yellen's latest comments, which seemed, you know, more positive and to point to the fact that, you know, innovation comes from the private sector and there were there are some problems in the banking system. H how are you feeling standing here today about about regulation in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think people were super nervous uh, up until recently that the U.S. would do something that would inhibit, uh, you know, growth. And look, this is probably the first time that the U.S. is not leading technological and financial innovation. I mean, you know, first time, you know, at least in my in my lifetime, I mean, in the 80s, it was all uh, U.S., uh, the only ones innovating in the financial realm. I mean, mortgage backed securities were invented at Solomon Brothers, basically. Um, you know, technological innovation. I mean, you know, obviously the great uh, tech companies, the early ones, Microsoft, Apple, these are all U.S. companies. And so, you know, you take a look at like, for instance, the leader in the space out and, and you know, by far is Binance. There's no single company that's even close, um, you know, and that's not an American company. Um you know, the single most important company in the options space, okay, is a company called Deribit, which is a Dutch company. They have 95% market share in all Bitcoin and Ethereum options. I mean, I've never, I've never heard of any, like anything so like dominant in any Dutch market. are making a comeback. What's that? The Dutch are making a comeback. Yeah, I mean, I mean you know, okay, they, 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 invent, they invented they invented this. Come on. Right. I mean, 1600s. <laughs> well, that's exactly that's exactly right. And John, who founded that company, was uh, on the Amsterdam Exchange as an options market maker early in his career. Um, you know, really, I've been surprised that some of the other exchanges, even Binance, have not really you know, moved into the options realm. It's a specific skill. It's very hard to manage. Um, 
Anyway, my, my only point is, you know, we have another Dutch company, Bitfury, which we think is a fantastic company that's got great growth prospects. Um, you know, I do think coming from your, you asked me like, what is uh, the global macro investor background? That's been very helpful. I've never been an American investor. I've always searched around the world for sort of the greatest risk reward opportunities, um, you know, where you have a real asymmetry. And I also think, look, it's just the, the, the nature of things. Um, you, I want to just answer your question about U.S. regulation, because I think what I've said is that, frankly, you know, people here are so obsessed in the U.S. with, you know, the U.S. and what, you know, the government here is going to do. Can they ban it? Again, I don't think it's really about just the U.S. I know other people follow the U.S., but a lot of people are not. I mean, Singapore, Sugen, Switzerland, you have Puerto Rico. These places are becoming hubs for crypto um, that are, you know, and Portugal even laying down uh, frameworks that are very positive. They see it as an innovative technology um, that, you know, can certainly raise the living standards, create enormous uh, jobs. I don't think there's any area in the world now that is more short of people than our space. I mean, every company is out there hiring tens or hundreds, thousands of people. Um, I mean, look, this is not some like fly-by-night Ponzi thing or nefarious thing. And I think last summer, people were worried after listening to the debate in the U.S. legislatures that they might do something silly and just like the Chinese did. I, I, I don't think I've seen such a policy blunder, macro policy blunder, in my whole, I, I don't know, career. They banned Bitcoin. They banned Bitcoin mining. Uh, I understand they have fear of free markets. They have fear of decentralization. They want to control things, the Communist Party there. But I mean, that is, I don't know of a more legacy intellectual framework than that. And I think they're doing themselves a huge, uh, you know, uh, you know, unjustice, misjustice. I, I've, I'm going to let you go in a second. I have two more questions for you. And one is I, I wanted to touch on what you just mentioned, which is that generational divide. I, I, I really feel it. You know, I went to a, a, the, the, the wedding of a son of a friend um, back in October. And, you know, all of the the all of my friends who are my age were like, ah, oh, Ian's a nerd. He's always been a nerd. He's always going to be a nerd. You know, <laughs> the, the the groomsmen were like, wait, you want to get ledger? Yeah. Dude, yeah. this guy, he works at Ledger. That's so cool. <laughs> you know, so I just, that, that generational gap is so, that line is so bright. And I think, I think we know why. And my, my question is like, for you, why, like, what, what, what is it about you? Do you think, Dan, that has pulled you into this? And, and why are you not one of the people that well, is saying, I don't get it. I don't want to think yeah, about I mean, it. It's why almost you very easy. It's the greatest global macro trade slash investment of all time. You know, uh, for me, it was just an easy thing once I understood how important Bitcoin was, the the white paper as an invention, um, that it was, you know, when I, I'd never heard, of course, of this Byzantine generals problem. You know, I'm an investor, not a cryptographer or mathematician that this was a problem that like people couldn't solve for, I don't know, for hundreds of years. 
And all of a sudden, in this eight-page anonymous white paper, you solve the problem of distributed trust. I'm like, wow, okay, that is a big, big deal. And then I delved into that, and I thought, wow, you know, this really is much bigger than anyone is, is understanding. And I guess as a macro guy, the funny thing is, is I always was looking within the existing structure for structural shifts. I was not ever sort of looking outside of the existing, you know, monetary and fiscal structure uh, outside of today's world. Um, but I do feel like it's like 1911 and, you know, we're making cars here and the naysayers are, you know, on horseback saying, you know, that car thing is just going to go away. It kills too many people on the road. It's never going to get, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, it's never going to get enough people. The, the, the roads are never going to be built or whatever it is. And so exactly. it really feels like that. And I've never participated or in my life, I've never been part of that big a shift. And so on the one hand, my background was helpful in seeing it, but also, you know, I was slow to it because I was sort of mired in the old world for, for so long. <clears throat> yeah, I, I feel the same way. I remember the people that told me this Internet thing, everyone's never going to have broadband. And then 10 years later, everyone's never going to have a smartphone like, you know, um, last question. What keeps you up at night? What are you worried about? Where does this go wrong? Where are the pitfalls? Well, um, look, I mean, obviously, there are a huge number of things that can go wrong. Uh, my sort of assessment, when I line all of the possible negatives up versus all of the possible positives, is that the risk reward, the probability that all the things that go wrong are, is really going to damage the future is not that high. I mean, like it's, you know, I, I you know, what, what can go wrong? I mean, um, you could have a, a massive hack again, you know, in theory. Uh, I, I don't think you can on the Bitcoin network, but maybe, maybe, um, you know, we, again, we've been seeing hacks in DeFi every other weekend and, you know, the system is super robust. Um, you know, if you want to trust a network that's going to pay you 25%, understand that there's risk there. Uh, you know, um, Look, the volatility, it's an early stage asset, the whole space. The volatility can be, you know, you know, astonishing. And it's possible that, you know, it takes longer to get to where we need to because, you know, so many people, you know, just get, I don't know, um, you know, discouraged. Again, only 2% of the 2 to 3% of the world have crypto accounts or crypto wallets, Right. Sort of like 1997 in terms of the internet, right? So I think it's still early and there's such a tremendous asymmetry that rather than listing, you know, possible things that might come from left field, uh, I think it's, it's uh, a pretty good probability bet that this is the future. That's a great way to lend it or to end it. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks for coming on and doing this with us. Sure. I really, really appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. That's it. That was a pretty fascinating conversation. I think it truly provided us with a few essential mental models through which we could perceive the Web3 space. If you enjoy what we do, please hit that subscribe button and help us help you get more of it. 
This was On The Ledger from Paris with your host Mohd Sayed. Till next time, take care. Au revoir. This content is provided for informational purposes only and is the sole expression of our opinion and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment or tax advice. Do your own research. Any loss or profit is your sole responsibility. Stay safe.